Hello, welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today's show, we have Manu Smaja, CEO and co-founder of Empower Financing. Empower Financing is a company that specializes in lending to students, foreign students in particular, because they have their own percent, as they have their own particular specific challenges that are encountered by many people who come to a foreign country. And with that, here's my interview with Manu. Manu, thanks for taking time today. Thanks again for having me, Jason. Good to be here. Pleasure. So Manu Smaja of Empower Financing, tell us about Empower. Sure. Empower, in a nutshell, is the leader in international student financing in North America. Now, Jason, that may sound fancy. All it means is we finance students coming from 200 countries around the planet, going to the top 400 plus universities in the US and Canada. And for myself and the 300 people who work at Empower today, this notion of really empowering the brightest minds around the planet to achieve their full educational potential is really something personal. Excellent. So, all right, let's talk about the history of the company. How did it come to be? Sure. It, it started from a, per, a fairly personal place for me. So 25 years ago, I was myself, an international student from France to the US. I was born in France. Don't hold it against me. It's not my fault. <laughs> and then I did okay academically. I went to the University of Virginia, but I struggled financially through school. I took a bunch of odd jobs. I was a grader, a tutor for math, physics, computer science, French. I was an indoor soccer referee, which felt like refereeing cage fighting. I mean, you name it, I did it. And I pulled through with the help of my family, but it planted a seed in my head. I thought, why is it so difficult for international students to get access to financing? They're excluded from government loans. They're generally excluded from private student loans like Sally May or uh, Citizens or PNC. Uh, or discover just because they don't have, by definition of being international, a US citizen co-signer. And so they, they're really left to very few options. And so anyway, so it planted a seed in my head. This is uh, 20, 25 years ago. And then over the years that the writing was sort of getting written on the wall, meaning I financed my younger sister as she came to the US, as there are still no uh, options for international students. I saw countless friends of friends drop out of school or not being able to come here in the first place, uh, because again, financing. And then about 10 years ago, and I'd worked at in consumer finance at Capital One, I'd worked at McKinsey and Financial Services. And about a decade ago, the story comes full circle in that a student from the UVA reaches out to me and a few other alumni and says the following. He says, hey guys, I'm $500 short on my rent this month. I'm going to get evicted. And I'm thinking about dropping out of school. And that really shook me because I thought, here we are 15 years after I'd experienced this challenge. And the student, who, by the way, is in his last two years of undergrad, is a mechanical engineer, is doing well academically, is the first in his family to go to college. So he's essentially the poster child of who we'd want to keep in school. This student's about to drop out of school for $500. And so that, that was the light bulb moment. I sent him the money, but it kept me up at night. And I thought, why isn't anyone doing anything about this issue? Why are banks not doing anything after 15 years? And then I thought, well, why am I not doing anything about it? Like I said, I'd worked in consumer finance. I'd worked in financial services around the planet. I've experienced it firsthand. Why am I not doing anything about it? And long story long, I decided to actually start a company to solve this social challenge and, and Empower is born. This is uh, April 2014. Excellent. Good on you for seeing an opportunity or a problem and pouncing on it yourself as opposed to just complaining. So well done. <laughs> So, all right, let's go back to the challenge, right? So what is the challenge that foreign students face in terms of accessing traditional financing in North America? Sure. So international students today are excluded from traditional sources of financing. 
right? You're it's seventy five percent of U.S. student loans are really federal loans, right? So they're they're loans from the U.S. government. Those international students are not eligible for those. And then the remaining twenty five percent is private student loans. So things Sally Mae, Discover, PNC, and so on. And these loans require a qualified U.S. citizen co-signer, which is international students, by definition, don't really have a ton of family who are U.S. citizens residing here and so on. And so they're excluded from those as well, for the most part. And so what international students may have access to, and even that is, is not a given, is a loan in their home country in local currency. So think in India, in rupees, in Brazil, in reais, so on at a very high interest rate, you know, you're looking at 12, 13, 15, 17% plus in places like India, you're looking at 30% plus in Brazil, they actually quote you on a monthly basis, you know, 2, 3% per month. And those are the alternatives. And those require mom and dad as co-signer, a lot of time spent at the bank branch and filling out a lot of paper, paperwork, as well as collateral, usually your home or uh, some land that you can use as collateral for the loan which again is generally not that available. You know, the amount of collateral required is not that available for a lot of students, unfortunately. All right. So let's talk about the challenges in actually issuing them. You know, there's, there's various reasons. I mean, besides the government-sponsored issue not qualifying, that's something you're not going to be able to fix. But I mean, these are young people who probably may not even have some sort of credit rating system in the country they're coming from, coming to a country where they have no credit rating, no assets. So it's not surprising that traditional lending wouldn't exactly be enthusiastic about lending to them. So talk to me about those challenges, what other challenges I'm missing, and how you solve for them. Absolutely. I mean, you, you hit the nail on its head, right? These are traditionally considered thin file or no file uh, candidates, right? At Empower, we believe that that's actually a misnomer. And that sure, there is no U.S. Uh, credit history typically available for these students. And when there is, by the way, we, we use that information as well. But we say it's a misnomer because actually there's a lot of data on these students. At, our, at its core, Empower really is a data company. So we're the only student lender in the world that picks up not only U.S. or Canadian credit history if available, but also the home country credit history. And then there's academic data. So think university degree, you know, think the test scores, employment data, work authorization data, financial data. And so there's actually a ton of information on these students about their past, but primarily about their future potential. And so that's how we underwrite. So that's the main challenge is it requires access to data and understanding of data, a speed of processing data that's typically not very common for, for traditional lenders. Traditional lenders in the US, as a student lender, they, they typically just look at mom and dad's FICO score. Really, that's, that's the main part. They look at those FICO bands and make the decision. This is definitely more complex then there's the acquisition part of it. How do you acquire customers that may be residing overseas today? And so again, lots of in-country partnerships, digital marketing, and a ton of sort of referrals and influencers around the planet. Again, not, not acquisition strategies that your retail branch in the US would necessarily be familiar with. And then the last one is, okay, well, you make the loan to... You acquire these students, you make the loan to them... You know, how do you service it globally? And that's really what we spent the last decade on is how do we ensure that students are able to make payments seamlessly where, whether they're in New York City after graduation or whether they're in Mumbai or Shanghai or Rio. And so payments seamlessly, payments at a cheap cost. So it's not prohibitive to pay $200 on their loan from wherever they may be. 
So those are some of the challenges and what essentially has become our differentiators. Excellent. All right. So take me through a little bit more of your risk modeling, right? Talk to me about, and you already touched upon it, but talk to me about the, how you compile it, how you basically have built, you know, the models you've built and tell me about the e- efficacy, like how resilient are these things proving? Sure. And I can start with that part first. You know, we it ultimately, and, and I think what a lot of Atlantic companies get wrong sometimes is they they build a product for the consumer and the consumer alone. Uh, in reality, as a two-sided marketplace, there's two customers. There's the, the consumer, so the student in our case, as well as the capital markets. And so from the start, it was very important for us to make sure that this is a product that would offer market rates as well as impact, as well as diversification and stability to capital markets, and obviously be a superior product to the students. So, you know, we, I mentioned the data points we look at in terms of benchmarks and results. Uh, we really benchmark ourselves to some top student lenders in the US. So, think Sally May, College Avenue, which are, are great companies. And we benchmark ourselves to their ABS pools, so what they securitize. And we find that we're at par or better than those across, across metrics. So spread on the loans, stability during financial shocks, uh, and so on. So that's, that's really what we pay attention to. And that was a focus from the start for us. Good stuff. All right. So talk about the other side of the marketplace. I mean, it must have been a little bit harder to convince. I mean, you go to them and say, hey, all these people you're not attending to for these obvious reasons, we think we have a way for you to basically attend to them. How much of a conversation was with it for the good to see your way? <laughs> I think it, it's interesting because that sometimes folks think about it as sort of binary. Like there's this point, this, this point where you have enough data or, or this critical data point, et cetera, that allows one to sort of convince the world. And what we found is it's everyone fits on this spectrum of sort of risk reward. There's people who from day one were like, yeah. My roommate in graduate school was this guy from Brazil or China or India, smartest person I ever met, and is now an MD at Goldman Sachs. Like I would bet on that person all day. It took very little data for some of these initial folks to to believe in it. And then as we scaled, you know, we found okay, well, there's there's more and more data that we now have. We now have our first cases of students, you know, going back to different countries around the world, and us not only being able to show that we can service but also we can skip trace and we can collect in those edge cases. We started having thousands and thousands of data points with the years around students who were staying, students who were going, what was the performance on those. And and being able to show that not only were we doing well on students who were staying and working in North America, but also those who were going home or going to a third party country like Australia or, or the UK for employment after graduation. I think that was another critical data point. And then COVID hit, and that was yet another proof point for us because we were then able to measure ourselves against traditional student lenders and show that not only did we have better spreads, not only did we have the same or better sort of default rates, but actually we were more stable on all credit metrics versus these other lenders. And so now all of a sudden you get, get better spreads, lower defaults, and more stability, which is essentially an investor's wet dream on the capital market side. And so that was really critical for us. And so it's it's this accumulation of proof points uh, that each time allows sort of the next step of investors on, on this ladder of sophistication, if you will, to make the commitment to empower. Uh, this is how we got Deutsche Bank, Goldman Sachs, Varde more recently, 
and why you know, we're on route for a securitization uh, as a next step for us. Excellent. I mean, in a lot of ways, this is, just, I mean, if they've exceeded that experience, then that's easy, but it's an interesting selection bias, right? You're not just issuing debt to any person coming from another country. You're, you're issuing to people who got into, you know, managed to get into a very competitive university space, right? And, and basically have demonstrated an ability to, to learn. And frankly, they're correct. Their earnings trajectory is higher. So it makes a lot of sense. And I'm, a lot of, I would also wager to guess, and you tell me if I'm wrong on this, that a lot of the foreign students coming over tend to skew towards probably some of the more, more credible, not credible, more recognized schools worldwide, as opposed to, you know, the local community college. Absolutely. I mean, I think you, you got it right across the board here in terms of like, there's a self-selection of who comes here in the first place and what they're sacrificing to come to the U S and Canada, the amount of discipline it takes. So it's, it's not just a a matter of you know their future capacity to pay and employment, but also the character you know to take the seas of credit, the character proofs that are required in order to make it through the difficult sort of selection and immigration process and make it here. They're investing in themselves and their future, and then they're coming here. And for the great majority, they're very concentrated in STEM and business fields. Right, someone is not coming from across the planet to you know I don't mean to pick on art history, but to study art history, right? They're really coming to get a top MBA, to get a computer science degree, nursing degree, you name it. And so that that also helps in terms of the pool we work with to start off with this international student pool is already very qualified. It's uh, incredibly qualified. I mean, again, probability, you know, the graduate from those schools, the, 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 the more recognized ones, the job opportunities are substantially greater. So it's not surprising. Uh, I mean, you're taking you're taking a very strategic bet in this in this sense. I'm guessing when you went in and talked to them, I'm guessing you went in with a lot of data about just how frequently these people get placed in top firms and whatnot. Was that part of the compelling value proposition? Absolutely. Yeah, the the placement rates, graduation rates, the salaries post-graduation versus the salary before they do their degree, it's it's really transformative for them. And so all of that was was highly compelling. By the way, as a sidebar, You'll be happy to hear that we work extensively with McMaster and York. Uh, so we expanded to Canada in 2018 and quite, quite happy with the work we do in, uh, in Canada overall. Yeah, you did your homework. Well done. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, all right. So that's how far you've come right now. So is this, is this where you basically see you know, the company just being is, is in this space? Or do you see yourself expanding at all to offer you know, more lending services or other services at the same student base? Sure. Great. In terms of our long-term vision, where we want to be when we grow up as a company, we'd like to be a neobank for global citizens. And, you know, and that sounds cliche. I think the word neobank is a buzzword and it's, it's overused, but I, I really do think it, it applies in this case in, in, in that a lot of these students, when they come to the U.S., they don't just need a loan. You know, and that's the immediate need. Otherwise, they can't come in the first place. But they actually need a checking account, a savings account. Uh, they need a way to transfer money back and forth between the U.S., Canada, and then their home country. And so that it's sort of a natural expansion opportunity for us. We're really scratching the surface on the lending side in the U.S. and Canada. So I, I joke that we're sort of a boring company. And we, each year, we, as we review all the strategic opportunities, we're like, yep, let's just keep doubling down in what we do well. Uh, so I think it'll, it'll be a while before we want to dabble with sort of more products. But it's certainly an option for us in the future and, and really the vision for us five, 10 years from now. Perfect. I mean, it makes a lot of sense because I mean, you understand the risk and you're able to basically market that properly, then why not extend it to other places? 
Absolutely. I joke that I'll be 75 years old, Jason, when I retire from Empower. By the time you've serviced every one of their needs. That's right. (laughs) So, okay. So talk to me about how your loans contrast with theirs. I mean, like what they're, what they're used to. I mean, I'm sure that these have to be more expensive than the government-backed loans. Like that, that, that has to be a thing right now. But you're eliminating the currency risk, which is one good thing. How much cheaper or more affordable is it for these people to actually you know, get loans for you? Yeah, so the, there's a ton. So, so the first thing I'd say is for a lot of students, there is no option in their home country. We had, when we did a survey 2019, we found that about 85% of the students would not be able to study in the US or Canada without Empower's help. So we're not really displacing something as, as much as making the market in a way. And that, that 85 number has been fairly consistent with what we found recently as well. It varies a little bit by market. There are a few more options in India. There are a few less in West Africa. That's what we, uh, we look at. So, so we're replacing essentially not coming to the US or Canada. Now, when someone is able to secure a loan from a retail bank, typically in their home country, so let's say someone is in India and is able to uh, get a loan with a sort of their local retail branch, typically what that involves is mom and dad as co-signers. So you drag mom and dad to the local bank branch. You hope they have a good relationship with the branch manager, because again, in these areas, like relationships matter a lot. So it's not as much about data. It's not as much a meritocracy. It's like, did mom and dad have a good relationship with that person? Then they'll, mom and dad will co-sign and fill out a bunch of paperwork and, and you as the student as well. Then a month or so may pass and then they might send an appraiser to your home. And so the appraiser, we, we joke, is someone with a, a stern look and a mean mustache. We'll take some notes around your home and what land you may have. That person goes back. It's still sort of a black box process for another month or two. And at the end of that long journey, if you're lucky, you might get a loan in double-digit interest rate in rupees or reais or RMBs, and just to pick currencies with ours. And they'll ask you to have that dispersed directly to your account for the most part. And what it means is you're probably paying six months worth of interest between the time you get the loan and the time you actually need to go to school. There'll be a ton of hidden fees usually. There's application fees. There's a Forex fee. Sometimes they require you to get life insurance as well. And eventually you transfer that amount of money to your school uh, and you can go. So that's, that's the happy path, believe it or not, for the students who do get a loan from a foreign lender today. So not only are we making the market for those who can't get a loan, but certainly we're beating that experience for those who can. Excellent. Great. Well, I mean, I'm sure you're a welcome service for everybody you're, you're serving. Absolutely. I think we, you know, they, we measure everything. Again, we're, we're a data company. And so we have over 2,000 ratings on our Trustpilot board. And the latest rating we have overall is, I think, 4.7. We're trending towards 4.8. So you know, that's out of five. So it's a lot of happy students. And typically, when we get unhappy ratings, it's not for any other reason than the fact that they would have liked us to be faster. <laughs> or it's sometimes a disgruntled person we weren't able to approve. So I, it's nice when uh, the only thing that people criticize about your product is not being able to get it or not getting it fast enough. Yeah, yeah. That's more understandable with, with a loan than it is a pizza. I'll tell you that much. Like, yeah, there's, there's very good <laughs> reasons for both. So, all right. So before we wrap up, there's three questions I asked everybody on a positive note. And the first one I have for you is if you had one wish for something that you could change in your company or the industry as a whole, what would it be? One wish for something changing about my company or the industry as a whole. Yep. That's an interesting one. I think the part around the misnomer 
for thin file students in this industry. I think looking at in general, in, and this applies to, to anyone extending credit, looking at people who are no file the same way as people who are thin file, the same way as people who are what I would call bad file, I think is just sort of idiotic. I think someone who hasn't had a chance to build their credit history or who's just starting and building their credit history is a very different profile than someone who has a lot of credit history and just has poor credit history, just like, you know, has not paid back a credit card or a mortgage or what have you. And unfortunately, in the world of banks today in the US and Canada, those two groups tend to be bundled together. And I think that's just a missed opportunity, unfortunately, for the no file and thin file folks. And so if I had one wish for the industry, it would be for us to, to look at things a bit in a way that's a bit more discerning and to look at additional data that allows us to consider credit, not just as a point in history, but as a trajectory and a trajectory in the future that we can actually influence positively as well. Excellent. Noble cause. So second question for you is, what has been the biggest challenge in getting the company to where it is today? <laughs> so I joke that uh, being the CEO of a Lentech company, the CEO there stands for Chief Extraction Officer. It's been fundraising for a decade. You know, in reality, you got to raise equity, but you also got to raise loan capital. And the faster you grow, right, the, the happier you are, et cetera, this is great. But that also means more loan capital, more equity as co-investment typically. So I, I think that's been a challenge, you know, to, to our earlier discussion around the proof points. We've had to build a lot of proof points around students and the data around them and where do they end up and what happens if someone goes to Brazil or India and so on and showing that they pay and what happens when there's a financial shock and so on. So, so that's, been, <laughs> that's been a journey and it's been a little exhausting. And I, I'm an accidental entrepreneur. I think I'm an accidental fundraiser as well. It's not, I didn't go and build an tech company because I was passionate about raising money. I built it because I was passionate about the consumer. And along the way, I've had to learn how to raise money and to be very focused and judicious about how we deploy funds. It is the irony of ironies in the advisor technology space or in the fintech space altogether that you have these, I mean, it's just, it's just the VC world in general, where you have these bright people come to you with an idea about how they want to execute and build a new business. And then you make them sing and dance for money every 18 months as opposed to letting them build the business. It is just, I get it, I get it, but it's just, it's Groundhog Day for everyone I know. It's like, okay, great, we've managed to close that round of funding. I'm gonna take two weeks off so I can work for six months so I can start this all over again. And it's just like, man, like it's, and the thing is they never want anyone but the founders in these conversations, right? They want the people running the company. And it's just ironic because that is probably not the highest, best use of their time, but it's the way it is. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, I would argue these are not necessarily compatible skill sets either. No. You know, I, and beware as a VC of the person that's actually good at raising money, right? The Adam Neumanns of the world and, and may not be equipped to then run the company. So I, I, I do agree with you that like, are there other models that are available that would allow the founders to focus on building versus fundraising? Yeah. You know, one of the things I talked to every time, Every wide-eyed young person who has an idea and thinks that they want to pursue VC funding, I'm like, okay, let's have a real conversation about this. And the only job you have is getting on a treadmill and hitting your milestone. And then that the reward is to be able to, to basically get on the treadmill again to hit your next milestone. But if you start hitting, stop hitting those, guess what happens? You're going to fall off the treadmill. So it's just like, if you don't want on the treadmill, don't get on the treadmill. <laughs> 
Absolutely. It's intense. It's certainly an intense journey. Yeah, I mean, don't and, get me wrong. A long it's a source. Of, I mean, it's a great, valuable source of, of revenue and, and, well, not revenue, but great, valuable source of uh, uh, capital, of capital, and, capital yeah. and getting companies going. But man, I, I really do wish the industry would take a step back and say, you know what? It's a bit silly. Send us your per- anyone who can speak to this at a high level. And then, then we'll take a fraction of the CEO's time so he can work on the actual business. Absolutely. Music to my ears. Oh. <laughs> yeah, well, unfortunately, I, I think differently than everybody else. So. All right. So, and the last question I have for you is what excites you the most about what it is you're working on and keeps you getting out of bed in the morning to fight the good fight? That's easy. I think it's just the impact from the students. So we, we look carefully, I and the rest of the team, at the Trust Pilot reviews, both because it's, it's heartwarming. You know, people who, the, the word that comes up the most often is the word dream, right? You made my dreams come, come true. I'd given up on my dreams of studying in the US and Canada, and then Empower came. I knocked on X number of doors of you know, retail banks, and you know, everyone wanted co-signers and collateral. And even though I was admitted into Harvard or Georgetown or, or Rutman and you name it. And so I think that's that's definitely what what stands out to me the most and what keeps me and the rest of the company motivated. And actually, it helps with focus as well. We know exactly what needs to come next because it's what do the students need as we scale. Yep. And this is the thing about uh, Emirates is, you know what? No one uproots their lives and moves to another country because they're not willing to work. All right. That's the reason. That's I do it. Absolutely. Anyway. And then, yeah. So great answer and good, great service. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jason. So that was my conversation with Manus Maja of Empower. Hope you enjoyed that. And as always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.